0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hey, Jane Lee here. I want to replay an episode for you about the Australian fashion industry. It's a deep dive into the major changes that have drastically transformed the way local designers do business, which might change the way you think about the clothes you buy. Okay, here's the show.
0: Next Again, that's great. I can out of it Thanks,
1: guys. <laughs> I'm Jane Lee coming to you from Wodundjeri Land, and this is the full story. <laughs> Australia's golden era of fashion has ended. Over the last 30 years, the fashion industry has transformed dramatically.
2: Well, there's a new retail giant coming to Perth with Swedish retailer H&M set to open its first WA store in Joondalup tomorrow morning.
1: With the rise of global luxury and fast fashion brands, making it much harder for Australians who make clothes to make money. The discount chain store joins European houses Zara and Topshop down under, proving to be a mixed blessing for local retailers.
0: Sassan by designers
2: Sarah Jane Clark and Heidi Middleton have cut ties with the label which brings a close to their
1: fifteen year collaboration. So now, even though Australians are buying more clothes than ever before, very few are made or even designed here. Today, where did Australian fashion come undone? It's Thursday, the fifteenth of June.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So
1: Lucienne, you've been writing about fashion and working with fashion designers for many years now. How would you describe the current state of Australian fashion?
2: Oh, I don't want to use the word crisis, but I think the Australian fashion industry definitely isn't
1: what it used to be. Lucy Antoni is a freelance writer and consultant for sustainable fashion designers. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but
2: uh, absolutely it's a much tougher environment for creative designers to have successful commercial businesses than it used to be and you know, really, what we're seeing now is all over the world. Um, fashion is becoming much more kind of homogenous, and mass production has made things all look kind of very similar. And that's uh, definitely the case in the Australian fashion industry as well. It's much harder for smaller brands to break through, and we're seeing kind of the larger, um, more commercial players kind of dominate the market.
1: So, tell me more about what the industry used to be like. What what was it that made it special or unique?
2: Australia has this kind of unique position in the global fashion landscape because I kind of think uh, about it as being like a season ahead at the same time as being a season behind because we're always able to kind of look to what's happening in Europe who are, you know, kind of a six-month kind of calendar ahead of us and our street style is always very fresh because we're able to draw from those trends and things that you see on the runways and put it straight to our street style without necessarily um, things having to go into production. But at the same time, there is also a lag because, you know, effectively... We're operating on the other side of the world from kind of where the big creative commercial fashion weeks happen. And, you know, what we had around you know, from the 90s up until the early 2000s were designers who were really able to capitalise on that on that freshness. And they benefited from the fact that we're a very wealthy country in a lot of ways and that we have a lot of time, uh, a lot of space and a lot of um, resources at our disposal to kind of execute, you know, really kind of creative and intricate designs at one point in time that were exciting for everybody all over the world.
3: Here in New York, I found such a story. I found two of the most fashionable names in fashion and they're Australian. Sass and Vibe had
2: started their markets in London.
0: It's really a bit surreal, actually. I mean, here we are in New York, two best friends from Brisbane, casting these amazing girls with a beautiful collection. It's like, we've got to pinch ourselves.
2: Lisa Ho started her label at Markets in Sydney and uh, we had Alana Hill who was working in retail on Chapel Street in Melbourne. These really creative women were able to kind of start their labels in this really kind of boutique small way and go out and find an audience and, like, test out what it meant to actually be making things and producing garments that people would wear and then grow these businesses into really enormous, you know, international labels. You know, Sass and Buy, Alana Hill, Willow, Kira is another one. So, you know, these were brands that were stopped in some of the biggest department stores all over the world.
3: being seen on some very famous hips. Paris Hilton, Sarah Jessica Parker and Kylie and Elle in Sasson Barn. Even Mick Jagger's daughter, Lizzie.
1: I mean, fast forward 30 years, it's, it's much harder for young designers starting out now, isn't it? Yeah, the barriers for
2: entry have certainly been raised. And that is to the detriment of, you know, the creativity that we used to see that could breakthrough because if you don't have really strong commercial acumen and a lot of money behind you or at your disposal, it makes it very difficult to have that same kind of cut through because now, you know, all social media is paid for essentially. So if you want to get a big audience, of course, there's some creativity that comes into play that means you can break through, but a lot of it is a money game. It's, it's not a creativity game. It's a money game. It's- yeah. For a designer like Jordan Gogos, who is such an incredibly talented young designer. Okay, so when did you launch the brand? I mean, essentially for me, it really launched when I had my first Australian Fashion Week show in 2021,
1: okay. 3rd of June.
2: His, you know, runway shows are one of the most exciting things at Australian Fashion Week and his collections are, you know, stocked in the Powerhouse Museum. You know, he's really considered this kind of force in the industry, but... For him, it doesn't really feel like the creativity is what's um, driving success. There's brands like literally on Insta these days that they have a pool of money, or they're cool. They, you know, they're making their hundred thousand dollars on influencer money, and like they just start up a brand that's ten times bigger than mine from a production perspective. You know, so for an independent designer like Jordan, who is You know, looking to Instagram as a way to break through, it's not really a level playing field when you're kind of going up against, you know, established talents who have been building an audience and a community around their brand for decades, or also have the money to funnel into getting eyeballs on their content or, you know, employing social media managers to be working the algorithms um, constantly and producing content specifically for Instagram.
1: That's, I struggle with that all the time because I'm not an
2: Instagram designer. Like, they're the 30K, they post a hot pic, they sell, like, oh, my God, we sold out of all that caps immediately. Like, I'm not that person. Like, I am a, in real life, tangible designer, like, that people can engage with. So when they make their product, they get to post it immediately. For me, I'm like, I'm stuck. Like, I can't be just revealing my runway looks and what we're doing in the studio before these events. And so we really what we see now is young designers needing to essentially have access to finances to be able to cut through and that goes all the way through to their manufacturing as well because whether they're manufacturing locally or internationally, there is a need to be able to meet minimum orders, which requires obviously cash flow so that you can pay your factories and um, produce a certain amount of stock, even if you don't think you're going to actually sell all of that stock. When you say commercialised, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, because we we haven't sold in the whole time I've been designer. (laughs) Jordan Gogos is a great example of this. He's never sold a dress. We've only sold to the National Gallery of Australia and the Paris Museum, but then outside of that, we haven't actually made
1: commercial collections.
2: All right, so you haven't sold any, anything commercially, like not a single piece? No. He's a really good example of creative young talent that's had difficulty finding that commercial avenue for his business.
1: How Australian Fashion Fell to Pieces. Alex, you've been looking at the fall of the Australian fashion industry with
0: Lucianne, and you decided to start this story back in the 90s. Why? We kind of started this story in the year 1990 because in 1990, tariffs on imports of TCF, so textiles, clothing and footwear to Australia, were at 55%.
1: Alex Gorman is the lifestyle editor of Guardian Australia.
0: Now, that's a kind of protectionist policy designed to protect a local manufacturing sector from cheaper imports. So, obviously, the cost of labour is really different in different countries. In Australia where we've got relatively high minimum wages, it costs more to make a T-shirt than it does somewhere where there are very low wages. And the tariffs were there to basically like even those scales out. But by 2015, tariffs were sitting at 5%. But actually because we have free trade agreements with major manufacturing hubs like China, like Vietnam, the US, effectively there aren't really tariffs on imported clothing anymore now. So what that meant as these tariffs kept falling and falling is that it inspired a lot of local designers to offshore their operations because that means that you can make a higher margins. Now, what happens when you offshore is that Australia loses manufacturing capacity and places that make clothes in Australia shut down. So Alex,
1: what's the next thing that happens that makes this industry a lot more competitive.
0: So I think no one really anticipated that we would see simultaneous like serious reductions in trade tariffs with a global financial crisis that Australia happened to survive really well. So suddenly not only is it much cheaper to import clothing into Australia, 2010 tariffs are now sitting at 10%. Australians are some of the only people in the world who have lots of money to spend and that pushes the Australian dollar to record highs. Mm. So you got this kind of triple cocktail of it's cheaper to import clothes, the dollar's really strong so that's making clothes cheaper as well and Australia becomes a kind of urgent market for growth because no one else anywhere else has any money. So we were really quickly flooded with both luxury and fast fashion brands so over from 2010 to 2014 zara landed in australia h&m landed in australia unique low landed in australia so at the highest and lower end of the market you are seeing huge amounts of international retail all coming in at once So now Australia's fast fashion market is worth about $2.3 billion and Australia's luxury market is worth $5.3 billion. Wow. And that is a doubling of the size of both of those markets in about 10 years. So that means, you know, we're buying more clothes than ever. It's just... Their clothes by big international retailers, big international brands, not Australian ones. And it makes it really hard for independent designers to compete. That was when we started to see kind of the Australian
2: designers who had been these kind of heroes of the industry like Willow and Sasson Bide and Alana Hill and Lisa Ho all very quickly um, exit the labels that they'd founded. And each of those cases, there are different factors that came into play for those individual designers, but the trouble that the businesses were getting into and the pressures were all the same and were all mirrored.
1: Mm. So Alex, what do you think it is that made both the fast fashion brands and these luxury brands so popular in Australia when they arrived?
0: So luxury fashion and fast fashion are two very different things in kind of most cases. Fast fashion, it like competes on price. It's popular because it's really, really cheap. Luxury fashion competes on prestige. It's popular because it's very desirable and rare, but there are a few things that these two sectors have in common in Australia. The first is that we used to have to go overseas to be able to access these brands and these clothes. So for older consumers, consumers who remember the days before we had an H&M and Azara, there's still actually a little bit of a novelty factor in being able to buy it here These companies can get the absolute best deals with factories because they are making so, so, so many clothes. And because they have so much more money and so many more markets, they can afford to do all of the things that you do when you're selling a product that is about what people want, not what people need. Mm. So the way that you get people to buy more clothes is by manufacturing desire and the way that you do that is by having really flashy marketing campaigns, by having billboards, by having huge shops with gorgeous fit outs that are absolutely stacked with staff so you can get service really, really quickly that's really attentive and these global brands, they have the money to do that in a way that no Australian brand could. An Australian brand can't afford to have marble floors. They can't afford to have 20 more retail staff serving customers than is necessary standing around in a shop that might be empty for three hours a day. So if you're starting out in Australia, your potential market size is, if we're looking at the whole population, 24.5 million people. If you're H&M, your potential market size is like 3 billion people. (laughs) So you just can't compete on that kind of scale. Basically, these are whales and Australian brands are minnows. So, Lucianne, what did the arrival of Zara
1: and H&M and other fast fashion brands in the market mean for Australian designers and also for what Australian fashion looked like?
2: Yeah, so, you know, we used to see designers would talk about inspiration coming from, you know, the natural world, like the ocean or animals. Or I remember when I worked for Willow, she was obsessed with this fantastic zebra rug that her grandma had at her house. And that became like the basis of a print for for an entire collection. And what we see now, you know, because of the introduction of these global brands and the reliance on data and algorithms when the big department stores are doing their buying is this kind of homogenized effect. So anyone that's kind of gone on the website of, you know, the iconic or David Jones or Maya, you know, and you're scrolling through, it does feel like everything looks the same, because everything has started to look the same because all of everybody's relying on on the same kind of sales data to inform their, you know, design or perhaps we could call it their product development decisions rather than actually, you know, seeking out kind of outside inspiration. And because, as we've discussed, it's a money game, if you're able to spend more to get your designs featured more on the site. And then that results in more sales. It, it's had this kind of chilling effect on kind of new design in the way that we used to see it. It just makes you kind of look back at this golden moment in the industry. And really, I mean, I long for those those clothes that we used to be able to buy and I'm still, I can't wear them anymore because I don't fit them, but I've still got them in my in my wardrobe from from that period. And I can't let them go because they're just so beautiful.
1: So, Lucianne, it sounds like there are a lot of challenges that have forced a number of really big local brands to go under. Is the Australian fashion industry dead? No, the Australian fashion industry is definitely not dead. It
2: is a really thriving and very special community. And I think that you know, what we're seeing now is, you know, this much kind of more diverse, you know, there, there are a lot of small thriving brands with really loyal followings and um, vibrant communities and, and that's a really wonderful thing.
0: The positive thing is that from death there can be rebirth. Desperation is the mother of invention and what this incredibly challenging environment has forced everyone to do is get really creative with the way that they do things. So to me, the big bright spots of fashion are because it's so hard, designers are completely rethinking their ways of working. So there's a model that I'm really excited about, which is made to order, where instead of ordering a lot of clothes from a factory and then hoping you can sell them. You sell the clothes first and then you custom make them for every individual person who's bought them. So there's way less waste. It's much more sustainable and smaller. It means that you can be so inclusive. You can make a dress, a pair of pants in any possible size. You can be adaptive. You can adapt to people's sensory needs, to people's physical needs. Someone like Jordan Gogos is using only dead stock fabrics. So nothing new is made for him to make his clothes. It doesn't contribute to the waste problem. It doesn't contribute to the overproduction problem because he's taking something that already exists and transforming it. And I also think fashion
2: designers it's like being an artist right you know like if that's what your calling is you're going to do it no matter what and it doesn't have to be mass production enormous runs of clothes for me to be able to keep creating and make a living doing the thing that I love and that I think is um, a really important takeaway for all of us when we're kind of trying to figure out what a sustainable world looks like you know bigger is not necessarily better what we do really want to see is industry support from government and other bodies to ensure that we're not losing garment manufacturing capacity and the ability for these young designers to have businesses at all, because that would be really heartbreaking if the landscape just became um, too challenging for them to even be able to make clothes and to, you know, have to turn to other avenues. So We're not talking about turning back the clock to 1990. We're talking about reimagining something else into the future that's better for everybody involved.
1: That was Lucianne Tonti. She's a freelance writer and consultant for sustainable fashion designers. And earlier, you also heard from Alex Gorman. She's the lifestyle editor for Guardian Australia. To find out more, you can read a feature article that Lucianne and Alex wrote together. It's called How Australian Fashion Fell to Pieces. It includes interviews with a range of Australian designers and also features a comprehensive timeline about the rise and fall of some of Australia's biggest fashion brands. I highly recommend you go check it out. It's fascinating. We'll post a link to that article on the Full Story website. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Karish Maluthria and myself. Sound design and mixing and our theme music was by Joe Koning. The executive producer was Hannah Parks. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.